listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured episode 121. Today, we talk about Trump's trade agenda, such as it is, and what the left can do while trade treaties are being renegotiated. But first, the news, and there is plenty of it. As I record this, the workers at Momentive Performance Materials in Waterford, New York, were on their 100th day on strike when the news dropped that they have a tentative agreement with the company. This is on the day that a major snowstorm canceled a planned rally in New York City and a week after big news stories noting that the workers had added a new layer to their demands, they were directly challenging President Trump. Back in December, in episode 117, we heard from John Ryan of Local 81359, who told us about the company's history with its workforce and about their boss, literally named Jack Boss. Yeah, that's a thing that they deal with. But the Trump connection comes in through one of the big bosses. Steve Schwartzman, head of the private equity firm Blackstone, Trump jobs advisor, and until very recently, one of the owners of Momentum after it was spun off from GE in 2006. The workers were calling on Schwartzman and Trump to do something. After all, Trump had promised them good jobs. 100 days on the picket line and snowstorms and sleet is not exactly making America great again. Waterford and its surrounding towns voted for Barack Obama twice, but Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton in the same area with the help of some of the votes of some of the momentum workers. Trump promised they felt to take on corporate greed, and they were hoping for some pressure from him to bring the company back to the bargaining table. However, the statement from CWA on the tentative agreement, the details of which remain confidential until the workers get a chance to vote on it likely early next week, the statement thanks Andrew Cuomo, Chuck Schumer, Kirsten Gillibrand for their support, pointedly not mentioning Trump. Guess he was too busy flying Air Force One to Florida with his hedge fund advisor. Late last month, when the Trump White House dropped the incendiary double bombshell of the border wall executive order along with the Muslim travel ban, New York City sprang instantly into the frontline action. New York Taxi Workers Alliance, a 19,000-strong labor group of taxi drivers across the city, launched a strike at JFK Airport. They denounced both Trump's executive orders and rebuked the participation of Uber CEO Trevor Kalanick on Trump's business advisory committee at the time. Not only does Uber's rideshare business model, which tends to shred local regulations and reduce one's stable livelihoods into precarious gig work, align with Trump's anti-government worldview, but Kalanick's participation in Trump's economic advisory committee revealed truly how the fresh-faced tech world is more embedded in the establishment than its progressive image suggests. Also last week, taxi drivers struck in solidarity with Yemeni shopkeepers who shuttered their businesses that day in protest of Trump's offensive executive orders. Kalanick later issued a gesture of goodwill promising legal advice for drivers affected by the Muslim ban, but Naitwa, which organizes both cabbies and Uber drivers across the city, rallied again on Thursday at Uber's headquarters in Queens. Here are some voices from that rally, starting with Fahad Ahmed of Desi's Rising Up and Moving, a local group that advocates for Muslim voices at home and abroad. And we end with the voice of Beira V. Desai, founder of the New York Taxi Workers Alliance.
Desai, founder of the New York Taxi Workers Alliance. We spoke recently about the passage of a right-to-work bill in Kentucky. Well, the next domino to fall is the state of Missouri, and I spoke with Shannon Duffy of Communications Workers of America and Missouri Jobs with Justice about the bill. Our newly elected governor, one Eric Greitens, who uh, his big uh, claim to fame was shooting a machine gun into a lake. Uh, everybody, he's a former Navy SEAL, and uh, all his, most of his campaign ads had him with a machine gun firing it, and seemed to, seemed to really get people excited. We, we, we all couldn't figure out, you know, does he hate fish? Why is he shooting that lake? But he's very Trump-like. No political experience whatsoever. Also, uh, keep keep your you know keep him in your uh, in your sights because he's already bought the domain Eric Greitens for president. So uh, the man thinks big. Let me tell you, he uh, went around Monday when he signed the right to work bill. He had three different signing ceremonies in three different cities. He was so 
happy to do this. It's you have to understand that we have uh, uh, a brother and sister, the Humphreys, down in Joplin, Missouri, who own Camco Building Supplies, which is the largest uh, manufacturer of roofing materials in the world, mm-hmm. in the freaking yeah. world. And uh, David Humphrey spent, I believe, fourteen million dollars on this uh, legislative session here. Uh, they might as well, they should just put his name on the Capitol building because he's pretty much bought and paid for uh, the majority of the of the Republican legislators there. It's So, I mean, uh, Greitens did what he was supposed to do. He, uh, he jumped up and down and uh, clapped his hands and went around the state making a big show of signing right to work. It's uh, it's the first in what we in the labor movement think will be, you know, a, a, a barrage of anti-labor uh, laws coming coming so, down the pike this year. Give us a little background. This is um, obviously a fight that's been sort of hovering around in Missouri for a while, the, the right to work question in particular. Thank you. We've had a Republican-controlled legislature uh, for a while. I mean, better more than a decade, both houses, but we uh, we have always, recently we've had uh, Democratic governors, when, when all these right-to-work bills started coming up, we had a, uh, Jay Nixon was the uh, governor who could always be counted on to veto them, and then the question right. was, will they uh, get the necessary votes to override his veto, and although they had the numbers, the Republican Party had yeah. the numbers, um, labor was able to reach across the aisle and work with some of those Republican legislators and and uh, prevent an override. Um, anymore, uh, it's kind of a moot point because we have a Republican governor, but a lot of those Republicans that stood with labor did not do well uh, in their next primaries. Um, they were kind of uh, tea partied out. And again, it was the uh, Richard Fitzman in, in, in Joplin, Missouri, David Humphreys, who was just writing fifty and hundred thousand dollar checks for uh, all these really, really uh, radical right uh, state representatives and state senators. So, um, you know, labor can no longer just look for legislative alliances, labor needs to really get down at the street level, at the grassroots level, where all the other protests are happening mm-hmm. if if they want to uh if they want to survive and if they want to fight back. Yeah, I mean obviously we're talking about Missouri, which was ground zero for Black Lives Matter. So um is there a sense that that's happening? I know that in St. Louis there were good connections being made with Jobs with Justice and, and the, you know, the protests, but are those the connections being made? It, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Um, I, there are there are good things occurring, and you mentioned Jay with Jay, and Jay with Jay is uh, Jay with Jay does amazing work in Missouri. Um, and there's a faith and labor coalition that has uh, been running for about three years. So there's there's a lot of good work going on, but to be perfectly honest, labor oftentimes gets pretty uh, insulated and just looks inward. And uh, they need to, we need to, I'm in the labor movement, labor needs to um, 
you know, start thinking uh, in terms of uh, kind of reaching out across all kinds of different sectors, right? We need to we need to stand with uh, people in the civil rights movement and the in the women's uh, movement and just anyone who's seeking equity. We need to rally with them to their side. I mean this. We're all under attack here, let's be honest, and and we can't sit back and think, oh, this just concerns my little corner of the world here because that, that kind of thinking is wrong, and that, and that kind of thinking is what leads to uh, defeat. That old saying, an injury to one is an injury to all? Yeah, the Wobblies. God love them. Okay. They, there, there's, a, there's a group of unionists that truly understood what the – what the struggle was really all about. Yeah. Um, so what is the what is sort of Labor's plan going forward on this to, to fight this? We're going to get it on the ballot to, uh, to overturn uh, what the legislature has done. It'll be on the ballot. Um, I mean, we, first we need to gather signatures. We, you know, we, we will get the signatures. That's not an issue. What's an issue is can we win a statewide yeah. election to overturn this. And that will be in yeah. 2018. That'll be, mm-hmm. you know, a year and a half from now. Yeah. And so a lot a lot remains to be done. A lot of building has to take place between now and then. Um you know, there's there's a lot of good people at the table. Um mm-hmm. but then you have to do the hard work of, you know, building power. Um yeah. And uh, we, we definitely have our work cut out for us, but I, I believe we're up to the task. As you were saying earlier, there's a, there's a lot of people that are under attack here. And, uh, you know, united we stand, right? That was Shannon Duffy with the United Media Guild and Jobs with Justice. And the confirmation process for Trump's administration appointments is hitting new lows. At this point, no news is really good news. So Andy Puzder, Trump's fast food impresario slash post-irony pick for labor secretary, had his hearing delayed yet again, and I guess that might be a good thing for now, amid speculation over his track record. It's not clear whether this was due to his shady, potentially unethical business connections or new news that dropped of his clandestine employment of an undocumented housekeeper years ago. Disgustingly, Puzder tried to cover his tracks by casting blame on the housekeeper after admitting to firing her upon finding out her immigration status. True, he said that he offered her legal assistance, but she was, shockingly, too terrified of being deported to accept his offer. I wonder what might have made her suspect that Puzder was a dishonest boss. But that's what counts as the moral high ground for a man who made his career out of marketing burger cleavage, denouncing the minimum wage as excessively high, and presiding over labor violations that earned him over the years hundreds of thousands of dollars in federal penalties slapped against his company, CKE Restaurants. Soon, ironically, he'll be the one in charge of doling out those federal penalties if the Republicans get their way, and put one of their own in charge of the one agency in government devoted to workers' rights. See our earlier episode with Andy Stetner of the Century Foundation on Puzner's historically unprecedented nomination to head labor. Meanwhile, here's some bad news. 
Betsy DeVos was confirmed as Education Secretary to the outrage of civil rights advocates nationwide. Not only do teacher unions see her as someone who will systematically dismantle public education from day one, but not even charter school operators want to be tied to her egregious track record in Detroit of mismanaging that city's privatized school system. Teacher labor groups are working to resist her now on the local level, and this is one place where it actually kind of comes in handy, perhaps, that the federal government historically plays such a tiny role in financing schools. But the kinds of programming and funding that will fill the gap as DeVos places schools in the hands of churches and corporations are also a pretty dubious prospect. Congress will soon find out whether a wealthy donor with no education background whatsoever can carry out Trump's anti-intellectual agenda sufficiently. The answer is sadly probably yes. But DeVos's real problem is her hardline Christian fundamentalism, as we've documented before. This will be bolstered by fellow appointee Jeff Sessions at the Justice Department, who promises to be fundamentally opposed to civil rights and upholding non-discrimination laws at work. So our children are about to get a history lesson in Jim Crow the hard way, under a new theocratic corporate regime in the classroom and at workplaces across the country. And if you did a double take when Trump issued his executive order vowing to scrap the Trans-Pacific Partnership and renegotiate NAFTA, you weren't the only one. Labor advocates have been, of course, rallying against free trade deals for years now. So it's weird, to say the least, to see Trump at the helm of the anti-free trade debate. But what does he really mean when he says he's against those trade deals? We parse his allegiance to the neoliberal corporate regime and think about what his trade policy might look like with Arthur Stimoulis of Citizens Trade Campaign, who I interviewed a couple weeks ago after the executive orders came down. And we recently also caught up with John Kavanaugh, who with his think tank, Institute for Policy Studies, put out some ideas for a progressive response to Trump's trade agenda. Here's Arthur. Trump's threatened to scrap the Paris Climate Treaty, um, you know, from the U.S. side. You know, he has been um, antagonizing, you know, a a lot of uh, international institutions, um, you know, even sort of attacking the EU and, 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 you know, other things like that. I mean, so where, where does this trade policy piece fit into those moves, um, which are kind of seen as not just nationalistic, but like boldly against human rights and environmental protection and other things that are generally seen as in the public interest. The problem with their trade agreements is not that other countries have won at the expense of the United States. It's that uh, multinational corporations have won at the expense of majorities in every country. Yeah, we're not isolationist. We're not anti-trade. We want trade policies that improve quality of life. Uh, for working people in this country and around the world. And if working people are put at the center, that vision of trade is absolutely possible. But if corporate elites are put at the center of of trade policymaking, we're going to fight it every step of the way. Knowing what we know about his cabinet picks, can you comment specifically on people to look out for in terms of how they might affect something like trade policy? Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, some of Trump's um, key trade advisors do break uh, with sort of the free trade orthodoxy 
uh, in some ways. Uh, yet, if you look at the majority of his cabinet, you know, there are people who supported the TPP. Many of them supported NAFTA. Uh, a lot of them are, you know, literally the very corporate elites uh, who have benefited the most uh, from these trade agreements over the years. Uh, and so, you know, there's a real question of who he's going to listen to and whose advice he's going to take uh, in trade policy moving forward. And, you know, I don't think we can afford to put on rose-colored glasses here, um, you know, just because he says he's against the TPP and is against NAFTA, that he's going to be for policies uh, that work for the majority. You know, it's going to require people making very strong demands. There were claims that TPP differed significantly from NAFTA on workers' rights. Um, is there any credence to that? And, and was there any real indication that the labor chapter in TPP was somehow stronger than it was under NAFTA or previous trade deals? So the TPP labor chapter was stronger than NAFTA in that NAFTA did not have a labor chapter. But the idea that it was somehow strong enough to protect jobs at home or human rights abroad uh, is laughable. And, you know, you you can see this in the fact that, uh, you know, the Chamber of Commerce and other business groups uh, supported it. Well, you know, all of organized labor in the U.S. and many other countries opposed it. Meaning that it was unfair in terms of uh, imposing certain that, that it was you know that it was completely unenforceable that it was unclear um, that it was so subject to gaming uh, as to be you know virtually non-existent. And on that point, I think that CAFTA was similarly billed as um, somehow more progressive on labor in the sense that you know groups like um, AFL-CAO could raise complaints with the Department of Labor and, and some action could be taken internationally, but w- what has happened with that when it's been tried? Like in practice, on the ground, what has the effect been on workers, uh, you know, in our trading partners? The effect has been nothing. Uh, we've not saved jobs at home and we've not protected worker rights abroad. Uh, and, that, you know, that's the measure <laughs> for, for any public policy. Do, you know, does it actually help? And the answer in all our previous trade agreements when it comes to labor standards has been no, uh, it hasn't helped. This has been sort of a fig leaf to help get it through Congress, uh, not to actually protect working people. You mean that like what on specific complaints, like nothing has been done or that they've stonewalled it or something? So they, you know, they, they accept the complaint. They spend years investigating the complaint. Uh, they produce a report. Uh, and at the end of it, you know, human rights has been abused, jobs have been offshored, corporations have made boatloads of money, and, you know, nothing has changed on the ground for working people at home or abroad. Right. I recall, you know, complaints being made in, in Guatemala, and the result is that, like, DOL comes out with a report three years later telling us what has already been widely reported in the press and has been reported in their own unions and in unions here and like, you know, okay. So like it has the uh, federal kind of seal seal of approval, um, but it still happened and it's been three years, right? So like, yeah. you know. No, me, you know, and meanwhile, if, if there had been an intellectual property violation, uh, you know, fines worth millions, if not even more, <laughs> will have been doled out and people compensate, you know, aggrieved parties compensated and policies changed. Um, you know, these are, these are just agreements that have not put 
uh, the interest of working people at home or abroad first uh, ever. And, you know, it's going to take a lot of work to change that still. And that was Arthur Stemoulis of Citizens Trade Campaign. And now we're going to hear from John Kavanaugh. He's executive director of Institute for Policy Studies. Based on the work that Institute for Policy Studies has always been doing around free trade and fair trade, and looking at this administration suddenly leading on this issue of taking down free trade deals, right. what was your initial response? <laughs> Well, my initial response was Donald Trump used trade to win the election in Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. And the reason he needed to use trade to win the election was because of decades of movements that have vilified trade agreements in those states. He brilliantly saw that that was his opening to workers there. Uh, He used trade to name the pain of those workers. He did it brilliantly. And therefore, I did expect that when he was elected, because his re-election, the moment he's elected, he's thinking about getting re-elected. His re-election depends on convincing workers in those states that he has done something for them, that he has produced jobs for them, that he's listened to them. So it did not surprise me that on day one, he he cancels the Trans-Pacific Partnership. He, he withdraws the U.S. from that and that he then picks up the NAFTA renegotiation. But see, it, it is a tribute to, in the case of NAFTA, to tri-national movements that educated workers in those states. And, of course, they didn't have to get educated. They saw that NAFTA was a purely pro-corporate agreement. It made it easier for corporations to move their jobs across borders Uh, and also gave corporations a lot of other goodies as well. um, uh, Those movements made it uh, critical for Donald Trump to take that position. And and so it didn't surprise me at all that he took took those positions. And and people should see it as, as a victory, if you will, that movements were that strong. It's ironic, though, that he was the candidate who embraced those workers' voices around trade whereas Hillary Clinton uh, didn't. Right. Um, Beyond the sheer irony of it, um, do you uh, see this as a potentially dangerous development? Or at the very least, how should the left now respond? It's almost like progressives did a lot of work in mobilizing people against free trade deals. And then what is a progressive response now that we've gotten to this point? Sure. Okay. So keep in mind, uh, NAFTA is is terrible for all three countries. It's a set of rules that's that's bad for workers in Mexico, the U.S., and Canada. Bad for the environment in all three countries. Bad for small farmers in all three countries. And the resistance to it, therefore, what was truly remarkable about the resistance to NAFTA was it was trinational, and people made the clear argument that you cannot, uh, in this world, this increasingly integrated world, make rules. If the the rules are hurting Mexican and Canadian workers, they're going to hurt U.S. workers. This was a deal that hurt all three. Now, enter Donald Trump. So we had an internationalist response. We said the alternative is a set of 
high road agreements that lift up workers and environmental standards in all three countries. That was our response. That was our alternative. Donald Trump comes in now with a false argument. He says American workers are getting screwed by NAFTA and those Mexicans and those Canadians have taken our jobs. So he's coming in with a false story. That isn't the way NAFTA was written. And he will call for the renegotiation of NAFTA, not to help workers in Mexico or Canada or the environment in those two countries. He will come in and in his renegotiation, he will try to make two or three deals with Canada, two or three deals with Mexico, which are, quote, good for American workers. And our response needs to be wrong story. You need, if you're going to renegotiate NAFTA for workers, American workers and all workers, you've got to change it and take away the goodies from corporations. That's the only way it will help American workers. Take away the chapter in NAFTA that allows corporations to sue governments. So it began with NAFTA. It's now in literally thousands of trade agreements. It is outrageous in terms of a power grab by corporations against governments. So Donald Trump, get rid of that. Um, but don't think that you can make deals for American workers. We've got to show that the only kind of renegotiation that would work would be one that lifts up worker rights in all three countries, lifts up environmental standards in all three countries, gets rid of the corporate goodies like these investment provisions. That is what is a good renegotiation. So I think, I think, I mean, here you are, though. Be careful. We have to be careful here. Donald Trump is giving us a populist message. NAFTA was bad for workers. That is true. <laughs> so it is, we've got to help people dig one, you know, inch under the surface of that and and see that what he then will be proposing um, isn't good for workers or the environment anywhere. It is interesting that Donald Trump is taking on some corporations. I mean, if you will, he is more a friend of of national-based companies than he is of global corporations, although he'll be giving enormous goodies to the global corporations in terms of trade and in terms of privatization. Um, and that's the thing to keep reminding workers as well. Uh, there's a term that you know they use in Latin America to describe a sort of free trade policies, which is neoliberalism is the term they use, by which they mean you know, getting this is a pro-corporate agenda, getting rid of regulations, getting uh, privatizing key parts of the economy and liberalizing trade. Donald Trump is terrific for companies on two of those three. He will privatize. He will deregulate. He will also give big tax cuts to companies. But he is confusing working people by being different on the other pillar, which is trade. But he, on that pillar, is very narrow in what he wants and in a way that, that truly will not empower working people against the companies. IPS has always looked at it from an internationalist frame, um, but how is that different from, frankly, the, you know, the anti-neoliberalism critique that we're seeing coming from the right in many different countries right now? We have what's often referred to... Um, you know, by the intelligentsia as protectionism, uh, right. but, you know, protectionism from the right, a kind of economic nationalism that's right. being advanced by a lot of different countries, especially in, in rich countries. 
So right. this this seems to require a reorientation of the movement. So that's a really interesting question. And I we always used to say in the NAFTA fight that in bringing in, when we brought in meetings of Mexican and Canadian workers and, and environmentalists and women and so on, we, we said we are combining solidarity with self-interest in this respect. What NAFTA was doing was a giant power shift to corporations. It increased the power of corporations to bargain down wages and working conditions everywhere. So it led to bad jobs everywhere. There was a shifting of jobs between countries, but all of them were worse jobs because workers now had less bargaining power. Hence, if, as, as Trump tries to claim, now I will say with the killing of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that is good. That's good for everybody. That was a set of bad rules. Not having them is better. Um, although we do have trade agreements with all those other countries, so it's actually, uh, uh, it's. But still, that is okay. Getting rid of NAFTA would be better than the status quo. That is clear. But Trump isn't going to do that. His corporate people won't let him do that. He will. He will renegotiate a few things. And our overall position say to a nationalist, somebody in Michigan who, who says they're an economic nationalist and they just want to help American workers, we would say you can't help American workers if you keep the basis of NAFTA in place, which I think he will, which is all of these powers of corporations. Uh, to, I mean, Trump is going to focus on certain tariff provisions, I think, around certain specific items. The other parts of NAFTA that I doubt he will touch are the investment provisions that make it easier for companies to go from here to Mexico and vice versa, and, and that also give more so-called intellectual property rights to companies that give them more powers vis-a-vis -vis governments and all. And by not touching those parts, he retains the power of these companies, the General Motors of the world to play U.S. workers off against Mexican workers and Canadian workers and bargain us all down to the lowest common denominator. And we're going to have to be really careful. You know, one thing we're going to do here at IPS, I just want to say, is we are monitoring every economic promise, populist promise that Trump makes. And I know we're not going to convince workers in those states that we're right and he's wrong until we've got a few months down the road and we can show he claimed he was going to do this for you and he didn't. He claimed that after renegotiation would help you in this, this, and this. Let's look at the wages in this General Motors parts factory here in Michigan and see. But that's the key. He is not changing the balance of power uh, away from big companies. And why would he? He's a, he's a big company guy. And that we're going to, as is his entire cabinet. <laughs> and that's what we're going to have to convince people. I will say one thing. He has been clever. His cabinet is abominable. It's Wall Street. It's billionaires. But on trade, he brought in two people who are clever, who are more economic nationalists. He created a new special trade position for a guy named Peter Navarro and the, the U.S. trade rep. They are different from the Obama brought in corporate people. Trump has brought in people who are nationalists, and they are going to make strong nationalist pronouncements that we are helping American workers. And our job is to help those workers understand that that isn't helping them. And also, when Donald Trump presses a national right-to-work law, an anti-union law, it is unions that 
empower workers to bargain for better conditions. Once he does that, that should expose to all that he's not on the side of American workers or Mexican workers or Canadian workers. But I guess my, my, my big point here is there is clear evidence, if you will, let's say you even like the term make America great again. There's clear evidence that there's no way to make America great again without making Mexico great again and Canada great again. You've got our economies are integrated. You've got to we are an integrated labor market, if you will. And if you do not pull up Mexican and, and Canadian workers at the same time, you will keep that downward pressure on American workers. So it is. Yes, it's you can say it's internationalist and perhaps. But it's not just solidarity. It is also in the self-interest of American workers not to go with, with the Trump kind of renegotiation. Instead, to get rid of NAFTA altogether or change it so that it has explicit provisions to protect worker rights and the environment and take away some of the corporate rights. I know that you know, you're, you're going to be monitoring things as they come down, and it's still early days, um, though it doesn't feel like that. It feels oh, like yeah. it's been three years already. Um, <laughs> but um, what are specific ways that we can think about framing this? You noted that in discussing the TPP and the way Trump took credit for unilaterally uh, quashing that um, and actually used it to undermine Obama, to undermine uh, the Democrats generally. Um, frankly, you can say that he, he, he explained that really well. And you see some major national labor leaders, you know, celebrating the fact that Trump seems to have, uh, you know, invited them into the White House in the way that the Obama administration never did. So what are specific ways that we can frame the message so that people, you know, become, I guess, a little bit wiser to um, what's actually going on. Yeah. Well, first of all, I do. I, I I liked many of the things that Barack Obama did as president, but Barack Obama basically handed the election to Trump in those states he won in the Midwest by making the Trans-Pacific Partnership a key part of his last six months. It is outrageous that he did that, and he handed. Trump an open door to critique him and to critique the Democratic Party. Outrageous. And if somebody runs again, if people run for state office in two years or national office in four years with the same Obama line, they are ensuring a Trump re-election. I, the Democratic Party is going through a big struggle right now, and, and let us only hope that it is someone with a Bernie Sanders or an Elizabeth Warren take on this. Bernie Sanders was involved in the fight against NAFTA, and Bernie Sanders had a terrific internationalist uh, response uh, to NAFTA. And so candidates in those states need to embrace a very different position on this. But I would say the key here in terms of I, – I want to say I am – perhaps less critical of the labor leaders. I mean, I don't like the labor leaders who went in the day after the pipeline, his pipeline executive order, and said, and said, we are loving working with you. I will say Trump was brilliant in that, even on the pipeline executive order, to say, I will renegotiate those pipeline deals. I will make sure that it is 100% American steel in the pipelines that are built. Donald Trump every day is throwing red meat, if you will, to American workers in the Midwest who, of course, and white workers, black workers, workers who remember the industrial heyday of the Midwest 
Sure, it was based on, on tr terrific uh, trade unions, but it was based on a vibrant manufacturing sector. And Donald Trump is promising to bring that back. So I, I therefore feel it's, it's, it's okay. You know, if, if the election were held tomorrow, I think he would win those states again because of those red meat executive orders. I do think the challenge for those of us who are researchers working with movement groups in those states will be we have to show two things. One, we have to monitor the jobs that are actually created in those states. So the carrier deal in Indiana, he said, Here, I'm going to keep 800 jobs here. And he got Pence to provide uh, millions of dollars of tax credits to the company. We have to actually count the number of jobs and how much money he spent on them and show that it does not add up to what's needed. Equally important, though, and this is the only way you beat Trumpism, if you will, is our movements, our people need a strong, compelling alternative vision of a jobs program that is good for workers, good for the environment, and that is equitable, that is good, that is explicitly good for workers of color, families of color. We can do that. There is a big vision, and Bernie put some of it forward, but we can create millions of good jobs that are good for the planet and good for, for people of all races and all classes if we get behind a giant transformation of our economy from a fossil fuel, Wall Street, militarized economy to uh, a Main Street and uh, green economy. There, there's ways to do it. Other countries have done it. We can do it. So we're going to have to juxtapose what Trump says and does with, with a vision of, of what a future can be that really will help uh, uh, working families. We can't do what Hillary Clinton did and run a campaign that is basically anti-Trump. That won't work. If, you, if we are anticipating that whatever Trump ultimately comes up with will be an economic agenda that's you know rife with these corporate giveaways like we've been seeing in the early days of his administration, then what do you think is the potential for um, progressive alternatives? And um, you mentioned looking at uh, restructuring our economy, but like you know, are there specific programs or, or plans that that are shovel ready, if you will, that can be advanced? if and when the Trump agenda starts to show its, its true colors? Sure. No, I think, well, first of all, I think we can start promoting this alternative agenda today. We can do it largely in cities that are still largely controlled by progressives in city councils and mayors. We can do it in some states, uh, and we can do the overall national story. Yes, mainly... In the next four years, progressives will be fighting defense at the national level, but we can win things in states and cities. I'll, I'll give you one example that we're working on very hard right now, this minute, at the Institute for Policy Studies, which is we worked with activists and city council people in Portland, Oregon, on December 7th uh, as they passed uh, a new provision in Portland, Oregon that puts a surtax on all the companies in Portland that pay their CEOs more than 100 times their low, lowest paid worker. We're now in conversations with people in San Francisco about this. We're talking with movement allies and People's Action and other movement building groups about spreading it to other cities. People in Rhode Island have taken it on. That is a provision. Oh, and the money, by the way, in Portland, Oregon, the money went to homeless programs that were underfunded. 
But in different cities uh, and, and states, you could have the revenue go to other crushing needs of, of working people. That's an example of something you can win in cities that will make people's lives better, that will address the plague of inequality that is um, gripping this country, uh, and that tells a different story from the Trump story. But I do feel around the jobs issue very specifically that in cities and in states, we can pass measures, and many states have been working on this and some cities have been working on this, that shift city and state resources towards a green economy transition that takes into account that that, uh, poorer people in cities will need Uh, special treatment so that it it works for them and that helps accelerate the shift. We are in a shift, Trump or not, from fossil fuels to a clean and energy-efficient future. It's the way market forces are pushing us in that direction. But local and state governments can speed it up with tax incentives, procurement incentives, and other things. And we can show people that you can get good green jobs. By the way, they aren't good jobs automatically, Trade unions still need to fight to unionize the the green economy, if you will. It it won't be handed on a platter. But trade unions, that's been the the story of trade unions for for decades. They've had to fight for every unionized worker in this country. Some would argue, oh, green jobs aren't good jobs. We have to fight to make green jobs good jobs. And we have to show people in the next two to four years that we can do that in cities and states to give them the confidence to elect someone who would do that nationally to replace Trump. Right. I mean, uh, you know, once upon a time, coal mine workers were not unionized either. Um, it took a mass movement to make those jobs the ones that people are missing so agonizingly right now. Thinking about what workers really want beyond whatever specific industry, it's really about the types of livelihoods that those those jobs provide. It, it's true. And, you know, of course, a lot of the jobs of the future are in restaurants and they're in home health care and so on. They're in places that it's hard to organize a union. So the le- labor movement of 10 years from now will be a combination of dynamic unions that figure out how to organize the green economy and what's left of our current economy and very dynamic low-wage worker organizations that are using other means, worker centers and others, to organize the restaurant workers and the taxi drivers and and the domestic workers and so on, and those two then working in concert. Um, But one thing I just want to say that is so important, it is critical at this time that people who are mad at union leaders who, who, who met with Trump and all, we will badly need our movements to work together labor and environment. Right now, a lot of environmentalists are mad at those union leaders. We will only beat back Trump and the worst of what he is proposing if we work together. And I do think there is a strong, compelling, unified vision for all those movements. And it was one that we put together in that tri-national opposition to NAFTA. It is one of transforming our economies in ways that are good for people on the planet with lots of new jobs that are good for both workers uh, and the environment. And we have to remember that vision when we when we have disagreements over photo opportunities with Trump or over, over the pipelines that, that Trump wants to build. Um, we are the two 
two of the centerpieces of our movements uh, are a dynamic labor movement and a dynamic environmental movement. And don't let Trump divide us. That pipeline executive order was an attempt to divide progressives, and we can't let that happen. I think he threw out his big promises, you know, what he claimed were his big promises to working people in that first week. Um, and I think we're now in, in a big fight over each and every one of them. The other one, of course, that is central to the NAFTA story is the wall. Uh, and so, you know, we're in a giant fight over all of that. And if we're smart, I mean, the one, the only thing we didn't get into, I'll just say that is really important for us to watch for is on many of these issues that he is throwing out there from refugees to the wall and other things, the business community is split. He's, he doesn't have a unified business community but behind anything that he has proposed uh, yet. A tax cut for all businesses would be a unifier. But everything, you know, even his thing with the wall, his hated labor secretary uh, nominee, Andrew Puzder, wants more uh, immigrants in this country that he can exploit in his fast food restaurants. So it's a there's a fast it's not just our opposition that will defeat a lot of these things it's the fact that what he's proposing divides the vast business community of of this country and if we're smart we learn how to exploit uh those differences that was john cavanaugh of the institute for policy studies you're listening to belabored a descent magazine podcast Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it is time for everybody's favorite segment, ARG. I wish I'd written that. As we look at the continued battles over Trump's cabinet nominees, there continues to be a tendency to declare them unprecedented, awful in ways that we're just not used to in the U.S., while, as last episode's guest noted, the wrecking crew Trump has nominated does seem to raise opposition to the very existence of the jobs they're hired to do to another level. But the arguments they're making, in many cases against workers' rights or the existence of public goods at all, are very, very familiar. In a very argworthy piece at Time, friend of the show and former guest Eileen Boris lays out the history of the opposition to the minimum wage and its roots in sexism as well as racism. Fifty years ago, when Congress was debating extending the Fair Labor Standards Act, the law that the restaurants of Andy Puzder, Labor Secretary nominee, are accused of repeatedly violating, to more workers, the arguments made by his predecessors in the food service industry sound sort of familiar. They argued, of course, that prices would skyrocket if wages went up and customers would simply stay home. Beyond that, though, they saw a very particular kind of worker as their competition. Boris writes, quote, Along with the supermarket, Putsch of the National Restaurant Association confessed, We consider the housewife our most serious competitor. He offered Congress a lesson in home economics. In her dual role as cook and administrator of the family budget, she is able to limit greatly our ability to raise menu prices. If the cost of eating out goes up, the housewife is quick to react. High prices meant we lose a whole family of customers. 
The spokesman for the American Institute of Laundering concurred in contending that the housewife would clean soiled garments herself or go to a cheaper local self-service laundromat rather than pay more at the dry cleaner. Women's unpaid domestic labors were interchangeable with service sector jobs, but unlike the employee, the housewife came under no minimum wage law. She worked for free. Those concerns, Boris notes, led to the sub-minimum or tipped minimum wage that we've discussed many times on this show which allows tipped workers to be paid what is now just somewhere around 30% of the existing real minimum wage. With higher wages, Boris notes, also restaurant workers themselves could afford to more frequently patronize establishments like those in Puzder's fast food empire. Yet the same argument against raising their wages persists in Puzder's rhetoric today. It is an argument that we will likely continue to hear, even though it is based, as Kellyanne Conway might say, in alternative facts. The restaurant industry is doing just fine in cities like Seattle with much increased minimum wages. And yet, well, we shall see what happens to Andy Puzder. We will, of course, keep you posted. And my ARG pick for the week is where's the best place to resist Trump at work? in the Washington Post by Moshe Marvit and Leo Gertner. Moshe, as you know, is a former guest and friend of the podcast. He talks about why it's important to resist Trump everywhere, including our workplaces. He starts, actually, with the example that I pointed out at the beginning of the podcast of the New York taxi workers' strike, and he discusses how resistance in an age of Trump demands that we go beyond regular institutional politics. So while many target their campaigns around pressuring lawmakers, lobbying for legislation, getting more people politically involved in their communities, as crucial as those tactics are, we also need to find new sites of political struggle, or rather, revive old and time-tested ones, starting with the shop floor and with the office. So how can workers seize power and direct it against Trump? His totally racist authoritarian policies actually make it pretty easy. The boss is the best organizer after all. The country just got a really bad boss, and he must be treated accordingly. While he campaigned on a phony populist platform of being the everyman, the labor movement can look past the veneer and encourage workers to wake up to the fact that he only wants to make corporate America great again, not everyone's America great again, while also destroying worker protections and social programs. That leads us to building power on our own in defiance in the sites that we do control, which can be your place of work. This could be in the form of whistleblowing or in terms of internal civil disobedience, Gertner and Marvit Wright. Quote, though often overlooked in America, the workplace can be as much a focal point of resistance and protest as the streets, the ballot box, or the halls of Congress. Our standard workplace regime of at-will employment, whether one can be fired for good cause, bad cause, or no cause at all, combined with weak baseline workplace rights, leave many vulnerable at work. But since jobs and trade were the policy centerpieces of his campaign, Trump has brought the fight to the workplace, and workers need to respond in kind. They go on, workplace resistance can take many forms. The most obvious one would come from within the federal government itself. Just after last weekend's protest, for example, career foreign service officers and diplomats began drafting a dissent memo against Trump's executive order on refugees in a major bureaucratic uprising against the president. Beyond bureaucratic resistance, solidarity strikes and other workplace protests in every sector can be effective, as indicated by the number of policies that have essentially outlawed this across the country historically. But if Trump breaks the Constitution, it's only fair that workers break the rules themselves. 
Marvitt adds that throughout history, workers have been more militant on political issues than they are today. Think about the workers' movements that helped fuel and broaden the civil rights movement, not just in radicalizing workers and unions by linking labor and social justice issues, but also by fostering cross-racial organizing on the ground and an integration of strategies across sectors and communities. Policies only went so far as the grassroots pressure pushed them, including the demand for decent jobs that drove the Civil Rights March on Washington. And this was also at play in the uprisings of artists and musicians during the Depression to help shift the culture of protest for both the working class and the intelligentsia at their workplaces. Even during times of war, activists can mobilize labor to take the principled stand for peace by tying economic injustice to the violence and oppression of militarism worldwide. And recently, in response to the economic injustices that emerged in the recession, quote, Marvitt and Gertner write, plant occupations and sit-down strikes have also helped workers fight back against major financial institutions. In 2008, 200 workers at Republic Windows and Doors in Chicago engaged in a sit-down strike that brought the Bank of America and J.P. Morgan Chase to the table and kept the plant open. Organized workers, too, can reclaim the workplace as a site of political resistance by starting discussions with co-workers on the effect of Trump's actions on their employment conditions or communities, unquote. Workers should be willing to take action beyond unions and also beyond conventional political institutions. Workplace organizing and protest is a place where activist creativity can flourish once again, as it has throughout history in times of struggle. And given the massive failure of existing modes of political mobilization, such as the franchise that gave rise to our current political moment, creativity is exactly the work that the big boss in the White House demands from all of us. That's all for this episode of Belabored, number 121. Be sure to check us out on Twitter at hashtag Belabored. Also tweet to us tips, story ideas, ideas for resistance at your workplace, examples of resistance at work that you'd like to share with the rest of us. You can also email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. And remember to go to our website, check out our archives, and donate to our show to help keep us going as we embark on the anti-Trump resistance. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. <laughs>